can be seated. So last Sunday, we began a short four-week study of the book of Ruth, this amazing book in the Old Testament. And my goal last week was kind of like the pilot of a new television series. You've seen a pilot. The goal is to introduce you to the key characters, raise interest, and just invite you into this incredible story. And if you, last week we focused on Naomi and Ruth, these incredible women. Uh, by the end of chapter one, we had seen Naomi's world fall apart. Uh, so much so she had changed her name from Naomi, uh, meaning pleasant, to Mara, meaning bitter. And we're left wondering, could there be hope of redemption and restoration and a future uh, for Naomi and Ruth, but especially for uh, Naomi? We hear that the harvest that had been in the land has finally lifted. As we begin Ruth 2, we get introduced to another character. And again, if you've watched any good television series, episode two of the first season always introduces a major character you didn't meet in the first pilot, right? Here we meet Boaz, a relative of Elimelech, who had been Naomi's husband, and we have another glimmer of hope. That's what we'll look at this morning. Uh, Boaz and his generosity and the Lord and his generous providential provision. Uh, so would you pray with me? Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Uh, as I come to the, the book of Ruth, and as we study it during Lent, I hope there's one question that we have in mind. Uh, how does God work in our world? And how does God work in our lives? You see, Ruth, and I think this is helpful, is not a book of burning bushes, and thus saith the Lord's. Instead, God is at work providentially, gently, subtly, almost in the background of the story, moving things ahead, and you don't even see that he's done so until the story finally reaches its end. Um, I don't know about you. I have things like that I can look back on, stories where, oh, I didn't realize what God was doing, but now I can see uh, his handiwork. Uh, about 25 years ago, I was invited to go on a Young Life weekend camp to Windy Gap in North Carolina. Anyone here been to Windy Gap? Yeah, a couple of folks, a couple of folks at the last service as well. Um, it was an incredible weekend for me. Um, uh, there's a program team of college students from Texas, a speaker from Atlanta. Uh, and I can look back. I was a sophomore in high school. That's the, the weekend um, that I found faith, or at least faith found me. Changed the trajectory of my life entirely. A few years after that, I find myself, I'm now living in Texas, uh, working for Young Life, and I ended up rooming with a guy on a trip. Uh, this guy's name was Michael Maines. He was an area director in a nearby suburb, uh, Garland, Texas. And as we got to talk and know one another, I felt bad for him because I snore and he's my roommate, but you get the idea. Um, we're talking and we see that, well, you know what? He got into Young Life because he and a friend from Baylor were Young Life leaders. And uh, all through college, uh, their friend would call on them to go visit different weekend camps. And they would go 
and do program for these weekend camps. And we started putting the dots together, and you guessed it, figured out that he had come and led the program group that weekend uh, when I came to faith. This kid from Texas who is now uh, my coworker. And it was, I don't know, it's just this gentle, subtle, you see God's handiwork, this happy accident of having been in, in this moment and then coming back together. And I would just say that if, if you have a moment like that, this, it seems like a happy accident or a coincidence that seems too good to be true, Ruth tells us probably be on the alert that God's gentle, subtle hand might have been behind it, guiding these things to take place um, explicitly and implicitly. In the first part of Ruth 2, that's the idea, is that there are coincidences that just so happen. And we're supposed to smile, to go, we think we know who's behind. All of these just so happens in the first part of Ruth. Um, I would just say biblically, theologically, a coincidence, and this is in our devotional book that you can grab, says it's something that occurs by God's intentional arrangement of circumstances. Ruth 2, the beginning we're going to see, starts with a string of coincidences, of just so happens that would never have happened without human effort and could never have happened without God's unseen hand moving it forward. And so let's look at Ruth 2, especially verses 1 through 7, because here comes Boaz. We learned that Boaz is a relative of Elimelech. We didn't really get to know Elimelech. He died too quickly in the first chapter, but he has a relative. And we're told in verse 1 that this is a worthy man of his household. It's a family member. We go, ah, oh, I wonder who this guy's going to be, if he'll play into things. And then we learn that Ruth, the Moabite, you notice they almost unnecessarily call her that over and over and over and over again. I think there's something to that. But Ruth, the Moabite, she's got a plan. They're back in Israel. The harvest is beginning. She's like, hey, I know how I will get food for me and for Naomi. She's going to go and glean in the fields. We'll talk about that process in a little bit, gleaning. But if you look at verse 3, what we see from the narrator says that she happened. She just so happened. She coincidentally happened to come into the field, the part of the field belonging to Boaz. You're supposed to have your antenna up. How does that just happen? Do you hear about this relative? She goes out. Lo and behold, of all the fields and all the land, she lands in Boaz's field keeps going. Uh, verse 4, behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem. You could almost read in Hebrew, can you believe it? Of all the fields on all the days, here comes Boaz. And when the Lord is setting up this encounter, this potential worthy man with Ruth, who later is also called a worthy woman. There's symmetry here starting to set up chapter three, but I wonder what you, would, what you would say when you read that. Just so happened to be his field. He just so happened to be visiting. The foreman just so happened to know all about Ruth, and they just so happened to meet and begin talking. I don't know, improbable luck? Where can we see the Lord's gentle, subtle hand? This is how God works in the world. This is how he works in our lives. Archbishop William Temple uh, once said about happy accidents like this, uh, when I pray, coincidences happen. 
And when I don't, they don't. Now, we don't have evidence yet of prayer. Um, I don't think even Naomi's gotten back to that point yet. But we see Ruth. We see integrity, fidelity, over and above covenant faithfulness. We have this hope of this worthy man, Boaz, and we're left to see what will the Lord do with it. Boaz is clearly a man of morals and means. He takes notice of Ruth and he asks about her. The foreman tells a little bit of her story and he realizes, oh, wait, I've heard this before. I know about her. Apparently, when Ruth and Naomi came back to town, it was newsworthy. Word got around on the dusty streets. He, he had her reputation in mind and he's impressed. He admires the over and above faithfulness and fidelity that Ruth, the Moabite, has shown to Naomi, the daughter of Israel. How she's come back even after the death of her husband. And from the foreman, we also learn that she's been working hard all day. Gleaning, gathering sheaves after the reapers. So let's talk a little bit about that. Um, I, I've, I'm not a farmer. We, we have a few folks here who know agriculture. Uh, well, let me just give you a little glimpse into what's, what's happening here. I think it'll help the rest of the chapter kind of fall into place. Um, what's happening here is first to know that Ruth is, she's in the field. She's gleaning. And what that means is she's taking uh, advantage, good advantage, of a form of merciful charity that was commanded by God for his people in the book of Leviticus. Uh, Leviticus often gets a bad reputation, uh, but Leviticus 19 has some incredible places where we learn of the heart of God. Leviticus 19 is where we have, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, for example. Then a little bit later, we have this idea of gleaning. God tells his people this in Leviticus, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest, and you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. Um, and we'll talk about gleaning, but just to be really clear, um, this is countercultural. I mean, I, I don't know how many of you work in kind of industry or in a capital environment, but like efficiency is the name of the game, right? You want to be efficient. If you've got a field, you want to use the whole field, or if you're not using it, it's because it's lying fallow waiting for the next season. There's a, a purpose and intent to everything you do. If you're going to go through and get a harvest, you want to get it all. You don't want leftovers. Could you imagine if, let's say you're a barista at Starbucks. Let's just make it easy. All right, one out of every five customers, I'm just giving the coffee away. They look like they need it. Or if they had a sign, if you're poor and you're thirsty, come and get coffee. And they said, hey, make sure to have enough brew that we have extra for those who need it. Man, do you, do you just feel the tension of that? Because you're like, man, if the one downtown did that, they'd run out of coffee, wouldn't they? Folks would just go in and take advantage of it. What's God doing? What's God revealing? He's showing his heart for those who are poor, the sojourner, those who are in need. He says, if you have resources, you're called not just to have enough resources for you, but enough resources to share. That's in Leviticus. Well, gleaning is a process. Again, it's 
a little countercultural, but I would have to imagine, one Old Testament scholar points out, if you're a reaper, not the landowner, you're really intent on doing a good job with the harvest. Like when you go through with your blade, you're going to try to be uh, prudent. You're going to get as much as you can, right? There's a question of, even if you're not using all of it, how much would have been left over? The scholar says that gleaning, gleaning fallen grain, this is subsistence living. It would be like trying to pay your rent by collecting aluminum cans from Tate and recycling them. It's what's left over. That's what's happening here. Uh, maybe with a little more of a fine point on it, Marion Ann Taylor, she's an Old Testament scholar at Wycliffe in Toronto. She says, don't miss the vulnerability of Ruth here. The potential for exploitation and abuse. We see it there even in Boaz's call to protect her and Naomi's worry at the end, don't go to another field. It could go bad. Marion Ann Taylor says, as a destitute, childless Moabite woman, Ruth would have had few honorable options open for employment. And she chooses this hot, back-breaking, dawn-to-dust job, gathering up grain left behind those working the fields. This is a hard path she's chosen. Uh, notice she seeks permission from the foreman. She eventually gets Boaz's blessing. And again, that's needed because she would have been in danger of physical violence. Um, it, it's likely from what we know that if you're going through reaping and the gleaners get what's left, they probably pressed. And the reapers say, hey, I wasn't done with that. Why are you gathering? There's a little tussle. A little back and forth was very common not to mention other forms of abuse she might have been open to, especially again as a Moabite woman. It's commonplace for the, the gleaners to kind of press their, their claim. So before we follow this story, I just want to pause for a moment and have us think together about the generosity of Boaz. Um, this struck me. I worked on some of this material last summer, um, and I was struck by Boaz, um, his generosity, his stewardship. And, and again, I know it's a little dangerous to talk about generosity, stewardship, giving in the church. Um, the last time I did a sermon focused on giving, we didn't get to finish the service because we had our friend had a medical situation. Like, I, I know it's dangerous ground to tread, but I want to pause here just for a moment um, and talk about stewardship, generosity. These are barometers of our spiritual health. Um, and I think as a church, it's probably best to talk about it when the church is in good financial shape. Our church is in a strong financial shape. We're not trying to press to finish the year. We don't have a major fundraising project. I'm not trying to get in your wallets. I want to say, how do we see this as a spiritual barometer? Um, and in the season of Lent, one of the three spiritual disciplines the church always recommends is generosity and giving. So I thought, let's at least one Sunday talk a little bit about generosity, giving. Um, I think when most of us hear the idea of giving to the church or giving through the church, we think about being a, what, a cheerful giver. You've heard that, 2 Corinthians, be a cheerful giver. Um, and as I've worked in churches over the years, I've become convinced that that's rarely step one. I think we grow into that. Um, I think step one is actually obedience. 
And I happen to think that God prefers a non-cheerful giver to a cheerful (laughs) non-giver. Just my little thought. And that it's as we begin to give through obedience that we do find joy and we find cheer in it. I think that's what Jesus was getting at in the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to Actually, this, this frames the offertory for us during the season of Lent. Uh, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth, where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves do not break in and steal. And then here's the key thing. It says, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. There is a principle whereby when we give, our hearts and affection are tethered and follow. It's not the other way around. We learn that from Jesus. Again, we don't hear that Boaz is delighted to be giving things away. No, but he's obedient. He's a wise, obedient steward. He's following the commands of Leviticus to create enough margin in his fields to benefit those in need. Uh, Ruth is actually the only real-time example we see of this in the Bible. Or she who needs it. She's, she's poor. She's a sojourner. She's a foreigner. And she's collecting the gleanings left after the harvest. Again, we see God's heart for those in need. And we see how that's matched by this man of morals and means who stewards what he has. He's cognizant. His resources are not his own, but they're to be shared freely with those in need. And here's what struck me about this for us um, today is remember what's been happening in his land. Year after year after year of what? Famine. It's a hard time. It's a difficult season. I imagine if he had any reserves, they'd been depleted. This is the first time we hear that there's finally a harvest again. And I was struck by that. That after this immense time of famine and loss, his first step was not, all right, I got to catch up. But he still looked to see, how can I, even in the midst of this, have enough to steward and share uh, for those in need? I mean, when things are hard, I think we just saw this. The tendency is what? To close our fist and clench, not to open it and share. Remember about two years ago trying to get toilet paper? That's our inclination. But what we see, that's why I was just struck by Boaz to go, man, wouldn't he have been tempted naturally to harvest and hoard everything coming out of that season of deprivation? Leviticus 19, of course, when times are good, but right now I got to look out for me and mine. This is the first harvest we've had. But no, he follows the instruction. He's obedient. He creates space and he shares. He's generous. He exhibits this obedience and generosity. I mean, again, Let's be honest, it's easy to give when things are good. It's easy to be generous when things are going well. But what does stewardship, what does generosity, what does sharing look like when things are hard or when we're coming out of a season of difficulty? That, friends, will tell you a spiritual barometer. How's your trust in the Lord? And how are things going? Again, this spring, this Lent, we're kind of coming out of a a crazy time. And I would just say this might be the moment to prayerfully re-examine or examine for the first time, hey, how's God calling me to participate in this? Maybe you've never given regularly. Now would be the time to prayerfully consider that. Or, Or maybe you've been on a plan saying, I'm giving this much, but I'm working my way up to the biblical tithe. Um, How's that progress? 
And is it time to take a next step on that? I just, I found Boaz for myself inspirational in this moment, coming out of, of famine. All right, let's look at when they actually meet. Um, Ruth and Boaz, part one. We see this first key meeting. It's gonna set up next week, chapter three, kind of the, the climax of the story. But I wanna highlight a few things of their interaction. Because I think we, just understanding gleaning is a process. We, we get the story now. We get what's happening um, again, in regard to the danger of exploitation and abuse, Boaz is protecting Ruth. Says, tells his employee, hey, leave her alone. He, he even goes above and beyond. Says, hey, let her get some water when she's thirsty. And don't miss that. <laughs> don't miss how big that is. I mean, this is back-breaking work in the sun. Do you understand how necessary water would be? And I don't know, I mean, you can probably think about times in the Bible where there are wells of water What's typically happening? Well, think about like Jesus, the woman at the well. Who's, who's doing the serving and who's doing the drinking? Women serve men. And they drink the water. Foreigners serve Israelites and they drink the water. And Boaz says, flip that. Guys, Israelites, this Moabite woman, she needs some water, give her water. Make sure she has what she needs. Uh, it's incredibly merciful from, from Boaz. And, and Ruth is grateful. She realizes this is a game changer for her to glean. She's found refuge. She's found kindness in Boaz. And Boaz says, well, here's what's happening. I, I'm being, I mean, not the hands and feet of God, but I'm being the wings of the Lord. Uh, you found refuge in the wings of God. You found care here in God. And he extends protection to Ruth. Now, it's an amazing image, the wings. Uh, Deacon Joe, in the gospel reading, Jesus said, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I long to gather your children like a hen gathers with her wings. There's care, there's nurture, there's tenderness in that. At the end of the day, uh, Boaz says, let's come and get some food. And there's wine and bread, and I could probably do a whole sermon on that. But the least, it's a picture of the kingdom. I mean, in Luke, Jesus says that uh, people will come from north and south and east and west and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And Ruth, the foreigner, the Moabite, the one from the east has come and is invited to the table to recline and dine and not just has what she needs, but she even has leftovers to take home to Naomi. She finds favor and success in this worthy man. He has great admiration for her. We start to wonder what's going to happen between this worthy man and this worthy woman. That'll lead us to chapter 3, but she ends with verse 17. We get the summation of her day's work. So she ended up with an ephah of barley. Now, I don't know how often you've done the math on what an ephah is. It's not very familiar, is it? about 40 pounds to can feed a lot of people for a long time. Uh, when later on, uh, David is a boy and his brothers are off at battle and they need food. Jesse gives him an aphah of grain and 10 loaves of bread and 10 cheeses. Go feed all the boys and their commanders. That's how much an aphah is. Um, and you should probably also in your head go, oh, whoa, she's strong. That's in there. Like, this isn't, like, she's physically impressive. She's hardworking. She's tenacious, this woman. 
And as she returns home, one of the most amazing things, we start to see some transformation in Naomi. Naomi, who said, call me Mara, call me bitter. Look at verse 20. It says, may he, Boaz, be blessed by the Lord, whose kindness has not forsaken the living or the dead. In other words, her husband. Her faith is returning. Hope is coming back into her life. We learn that Boaz is one of the family's redeemers. That'll become really key, a redeemer. And the chapter ends with Ruth. She's working fruitfully under the protection of Boaz. And all of this started with a string of just so happens. Happy accidents, coincidences. God's providential hand moving things along. Now, I want to go back just for a moment of uh, my own story. Reconnecting with Michael Maines while on Young Life staff. Uh, by the way, our last service, we had a family who was active in Dallas Young Life, and they were like, we know Michael. <laughs> kind of fun. Um, and, and this isn't prescriptive. Again, I, I don't know how God's worked in your life or will work in your life, or how you'll see it in hindsight, or later you'll look back and see it. This is more testimony. And the idea is hopefully to encourage you to spend some time in reflection, maybe today, maybe this week. Man, how has God gently, subtly been at work? Or even in this hard time, how could we even imagine that in five years we could look back and a piece or two might fall into place? And we see what God had been doing um, the whole time. You see, I was only on Young Life staff for a few years. Um, I made the joke, I didn't have enough Chacos <laughs> or Nalgene bottles. And so they said, sorry, you got to go do something else. You like books. Okay, fine. Um, Went to finish my seminary studies and went on staff at a church, Christ Church in Plano, Texas. Moved into the Anglican Church out of my time on Young Life staff. In 09, was ordained as a deacon and was serving wherever I could in this big church in Dallas. Um, in 2009, if I say that, I don't know if you get a metal image or you have a hook for that. It wasn't famine, but it was close. That's when everything bottom fell out. It was bad. Um, and if you're a really big church in the suburbs, living on the edge of your budget, guess what you do? Downsize. I think we were going to downsize 30 employees. It was a big church. I had one of the short straws. I was told, hey, you got about six months. Figure out what you and your young family are going to do. And I was sitting there going, oh, my gosh, like, Lord, like, I thought you led us into the Anglican church. I thought this was a call, a future, a potential, and what in the world? I don't even know how we're going to pay the rent in six months. So in the midst of that, I'm, again, a young deacon. I'm trying to learn. I'm, certain, I'm having these doubts that I think are natural. I don't know. Maybe you think I should have more faith. I think that's honest. Things are hard. You doubt. You wonder. You question. And in the midst of that season, we had a funeral pop up at the church. I was like, good, I need to go learn how to do these. Um, it was kind of an older church. I was trying to make myself useful. I need to figure out how to do funerals. A young man who had grown up in the church had passed away. Um, he had cystic fibrosis, um, and it had progressed. And I knew his parents. They came to our Saturday evening service, Jennifer and Fred. Um, I'd never met Adam, their son. And so I slipped into the back of our sanctuary. It's a big, I mean, um, when you have someone young, dad, kids, they pass, it's a big service. Uh, people turn out for those kinds of things. 
So I kind of slip in the back. I'm watching. Our services, they have a procession. They bring in usually the cross. If there's a casket or an urn, that all comes in. And I look, and to my surprise, here comes Michael Maines. And Michael's a pallbearer. They're carrying in this casket uh, for this guy. And gets to the time for the eulogies, and they start talking about this kid's life. He's in his, a little bit older than me at the time. Um, and I learned that this guy, Adam, he had come to faith through young life. I was like, oh, cool, so did I. I said, yeah, he came to faith through young life. He went down to Baylor College. And from time to time, him and his roommate, Michael, they would go and do these programs at these weekend camps. And his mom would make costumes for them. Um, and we, their community group and small group, they would pray, hey, we're sending one of our own to do ministry. Let's pray for his ministry. Let's pray for the kids who are going to hear the gospel wherever he goes. And they told this ridiculous, funny story about the time she had to make them kilts because Braveheart had just come out. So they had to be these ridiculous Scottish characters because they were going to go be part of this program team at a Windy Gap camp for these kids from Atlanta. And so the church was praying for these kids from Atlanta who would come and hear the gospel. Well, you can imagine, I'm a puddle in the back. As I'm realizing, I'm sitting here trying to figure out, can I trust the Lord? And I learned that this kid who grew up in this church and this tradition that I didn't even know about that I had been invited into had gone to serve this group of kids from Atlanta. And some of the women from this church, some of whom I can see now, were praying. And they're praying for me. A dozen years before I met them, um, and friends, I was like, okay, this is going to be all right. There's, there's something bigger that, that I can trust in and lean on um, in the few times that you get that gracious glimpse, and even when you don't, to say the Lord can be part of things. He can be at work. Um, Again, biblically, theologically speaking, a coincidence is something that occurs by God's intentional arrangement of circumstances that would have never happened without human effort and could never have happened without God's providential hand. Archbishop Temple, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. And those women were praying for me. And it, it's almost as if the Lord waited to show me that when I needed to hear it. And when I needed to trust. Um, and just fast forward a little bit. Adam does have a brother named Justin. I met him at the reception. Uh, Justin is an Anglican priest. Um, and so fast forward from 09 when I kind of figured that out. And I'm now in a clergy covenant group with his brother, Justin. Uh, we meet every week on Zoom. We did it before any of you knew what Zoom was. Because <laughs> he lives in Texas. We walked through this whole pandemic thing. Five, six of us together. Um, half the time going, dude, what are you doing? I don't know. We're going to like put communion in bags. Who knows? Mass, no mass. How, how are you navigating this? We prayed for one another. We walked with one another through this incredibly hard season. And you can imagine we've got a special friendship because of this connection to his family and what they meant to me when I didn't even know it. So again, that's, that's my story. That's a testimony from my life. But when I think about the just so happens of Ruth, the happy coincidences, the accidents, that's how I've seen the Lord work. But I wonder, how have you seen him work? Again, I don't think we get this all the time. 
This is maybe like Moses up on the mountain that one time. Let me see just the back of you kind of thing. We just get a glimpse. By God's grace, sometimes he gives us that glimpse. And I think we can be encouraged to know if we don't see the bigger picture, we can still trust there is one and that he's at work. And maybe we'll figure out what was happening and what God was up to. And certainly in the resurrection of the dead and the life to come, we will. We'll know what he was up to. We'll marvel and worship at God's good and perfect plan for you and for me. In the name of the Father, of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.